Chasing Lights Chapter 1 Is it a risk to be yourself? Or is it a risk not to? Is it important to know where you come from? Childhood takes up about a fifth of our life, but it accounts for most of the stories we tell. Everyone becomes an expert at telling their stories, but is that a good thing to do? Is it that important? Ancient myths, the Bible, stories told to a therapist, even comic books focus obsessively on the origin. Does telling, retelling, and retelling again help us make sense of today? Sometimes yes. Sometimes I think no. I worry about the way origins are used to prove a point. See, this is why I'm unhappy or angry, foolish, selfish. My parents did it. Or as a kid, I frightened everyone with my disaster predictions, and that's why I work in insurance. Now, both statements may be true, but they can also obscure or distort what happened and what it really meant. I could be unhappy for reasons that have nothing to do with my parents, or I might work in the insurance business because my uncle arranged an interview with his company when I really needed a job. Let's just agree to stop looking for proof points. Instead, let's try to see the past as clearly as we can. Let's hold it up to the light and try to understand it without any forced causality and find out what can be learned. Now here are the basic facts of my childhood. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1964, the oldest of four children. My parents moved us to Anchorage, Alaska in 1971. Eleven years later, I went to college in North Carolina. It was a journey of 11,000 miles over 18 years in temperatures that ranged from negative 60 degrees to positive 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Wild animals like bear, moose, eagles, caribou were commonplace. Mountains were epic. Winters were cold. Summer, while well, the sun went through the entire evening. And the northern lights were frequent. When we first visited Alaska in 1970, all the license plates had the words North to the Future printed on the bottom. When I left Alaska to go to college in 1982, the license plate slogans had changed to The Final Frontier. Both slogans applied then and probably still do today. My first Alaska story helps explain why I ended up there. When my father was 12 or 13 years old in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, his father, a determined Republican, declared during the 1948 presidential election that if Harry Truman is elected president, we are moving to Alaska. The morning after, with newspapers announcing Truman's win sitting on the breakfast table, my father asked his father when they were moving, but there was no answer. I doubt it's because of that election, but my father later became a pretty determined Democrat. If the Northern Lights showed themselves on the night I was born, my parents and I wouldn't have known. We were in Philadelphia at the time, and even if all the city lights were dark, the lights are rarely seen in Pennsylvania. It's only when you go further north that they become common. 
In any case, my parents probably weren't looking up at that moment since they were having a baby. I started out with them in a small apartment in the city, which I don't remember, and my brother arrived a little over a year later. We moved to the suburbs, and in the years following, a sister came along for the ride. We were a family of five with a dog and a couple of cats. I have a few memories that begin around that time. I remember telling someone I was three and a half years old, and I held up my fingers to count. I remember finally having the courage to climb a jungle gym all the way to the top. I remember playing in the backyard with my brother. I remember spending summer days at a community pool with my mother, brother, and sister. And impossible to forget as well was the corn on the cob we picked up directly from a farm on our way home. There was Halloween, Christmas, and birthdays. These are all flashes of memory, along with visits from grandparents and visits to cousins. More than just a flash, though, was the 4th of July. Spread out on a blanket with my family in a field somewhere in Pennsylvania, waiting for darkness to come and the fireworks to start. I called it Pow Pow Night, and my parents still do when they remember those days. The darkness came, and fireworks so bright and colorful lit up the sky. Everyone had seen fireworks many times, and for the most part, they are all the same, a series of different colors, sparks, showers, the, the cracks and the booms of different rockets, ultimately a crescendo of explosions and light that seem impossible, like it's just too much to sustain, and then it's over. Like the best action movie ever, no matter how many times I see the same plot, I am entranced, surprised, and delighted. Lights in the sky. How does the extraordinary become normal? How, how does the extraordinary pass by so quickly? I remember fishing in a small pond with my dad, watching the red and white float that sank when a fish grabbed the hook. I remember watching the Apollo moon landing in dribs and drabs with Walter Cronkite reporting and my illustrated space travel book in front of me. I remember my mom speaking in Swedish on the phone to her mother. I remember her sad. My father struggled with sadness too. He tended to deal with it in a different way. He had powerful reserves of energy and sometimes was a blur as he ran through life. His straight dark hair parted on the side was always tousled and maybe a week or two past due for a haircut. It always seemed like he didn't have enough time for things like haircuts. Instead, his energy was focused on putting things right, whether it was at work as a lawyer or at home with us. The answer to problems was always to go faster, to work harder, to do more. He talked quickly, intelligently, and loudly. He was generous with superlatives in his speech and expressed his love and care at full volume. My father told us that my mother was the most beautiful woman in the world. My siblings and I were the smartest in the world, and anyone who believed otherwise was an idiot. Welcome words to hear, and at times exactly what was needed, and at other times it was difficult. The dissonance from what I was experiencing and what he described could be a struggle to hold together in my mind. It took decades to learn that sadness was part of my genetic inheritance. Depression was normal in my family, and to different degrees, we all wrestled with it. It was hard to even see it as it was so normal. 
The family managed it well, but it wasn't easy. For example, my uh, mother's father, an extremely successful man through hard work, education, and ambition, managed to become an economist and ambassador. He somehow got his young family out of Europe into the U.S. just as the Axis powers formed. He wrote several books in multiple languages and counted important people like T.S. Eliot, Charles Lindbergh, and J. Robert Oppenheimer as his friends. But he was also moody and bitter and depressed. He could shift from high energy to low quickly and unpredictably. But late in life, his darkness lifted somewhat, and he always laughed when my siblings and I called him more, more far. A name that made sense to an English-speaking kid from Philadelphia trying to say something Swedish, but to a Swedish grandfather, it sounded like we were calling him our great-grandfather. And I've been told that my great-grandfather also had depression, as did my mother and my uncle. A family biography like that often gets a knowing look from a therapist. The subtext of that look is clearly, you are screwed but I don't think so. I remember my father trying to create an oil painting of my mother. He wanted to give her something special for their anniversary, but there wasn't a lot of money to spare. There wasn't much time either. And determined to do it secretly, he arranged a day where he was in charge of my brother, sister, and me while mom was out taking care of errands or maybe doing something nice for herself. Errands were more likely as neither of my parents were prone to spoil themselves very much. My mother was especially practical even in Philadelphia, she revealed bits and pieces of her inner pioneer with perseverance, focus, and gumption. But back to the painting. There we were, three toddlers, dad, a canvas propped up on a kitchen table with a palette, tubes of paint, and a couple of brushes. I don't remember, but he probably had given all of us something to do so he could focus on the work. But the only thing we wanted to do was get and hold his attention. We climbed on his body and asked him the usual endless questions. And despite our best efforts, he somehow managed to paint a lovely image of my mother in a field in time for their anniversary. It's easy to forget sometimes because of what he did for a living, but my father was an artist. He painted oils, he took incredible photos, he wrote poetry and short stories, he acted, and he was brilliant as an after-dinner reader of books. His renditions of T.H. White's Once and Future King and P.G. Wodehouse's Right Ho, Jeeves, find a whole period of our lives. In the mid-1960s, though, he started to grow a full beard, and in photographs, he looked like he might fit in with Jack Kerouac's friends, reciting poetry in a coffee house. He kept his beard, but he never pursued art as a living, and as far as I know, he never seriously wanted to. He was proud to be an attorney and worked it with all his talent, all his passion. As a result, he was a very good trial lawyer and equally good federal judge. My mother was no less formidable. She grew up in Sweden, Jordan, Switzerland, New York, and New Jersey. She spoke three languages and had gone to some of the best schools in the world. There was a painting by Andrew Wyeth called Siri that people often think looks just like her. I think I agree. She had long, dark blonde hair, usually tied in a braid at the back of her head. And just like the painting, mom was as still and calm as my dad was kinetic. She was a gifted listener and endlessly patient. No matter what was going on with her, she listened. There were times when I followed her around the house all day asking questions and telling whatever stories came to mind. She never told me to stop. My mother had art in her hands. She sewed and knitted our clothes. She wove 
bolts of cloth on a loom the size of a car set up in the basement. She made wall hangings, clothing, tablecloths, even a set of full Easter vestments for a local priest. She painted the kitchen cabinets with illustrations of mythical creatures. She refinished and painted furniture and drew sketches intriguing enough to be framed and put on the walls. Neither one of them belonged in suburban Philadelphia. They wore the uniforms of the time. Neither one of them belonged in suburban Philadelphia. They wore the uniforms of the time, dad in his uh, skinny black tie and horned rimmed glasses, and mom in her tasteful dresses, just like every other mom. But somehow, the costumes didn't quite fit. They were on their way, but it wasn't really their way. One Christmas, we all put on our coats to go out onto the driveway. And stepping through fresh snow, we looked up to see Dad standing in front of a cream-colored Volkswagen camper with a big red bow tied around it. Smaller than most minivans today, but with all sorts of built-in features like sinks and multiple beds and a table that folded down. We loved it right away. Riding in that camper felt more like sitting in a cafe than a car. A few people have compared the VW vans and campers to Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion car prototypes that he built in the 30s with its long box shape and rear engine. It was a car for the future, imagined in the past, but it was taking us forward. Mom and Dad then explained why we had a new and magical transport in our driveway. Some people at the time might have even called it groovy. But for summer vacation, we were to travel all over the U.S. and Canada. That was unexpected. But in a camper like that, it sounded like a good idea. To sweeten the deal, I got to sleep in my own hammock in the pop-up top. The novelty and excitement of that hammock lasted as long as we owned the camper. It was the closest thing to a treehouse I ever knew. And when summer came, we loaded the camper with supplies, clothes, and a dog, a Beagle Basset mix named Ralph, and all jumped in. A little more than 20 years after Harry Truman beat Thomas Dewey, we made our way to Alaska. There was a particular sound that Volkswagens made in those days, completely different than water-cooled V6s or V8s that were in normal cars. It was a four-cylinder air-cooled engine crammed into a compartment under the back seat. It was essentially the same engine used in a much smaller four-passenger car that was known as the Beetle. How did it manage to carry all of us thousands of miles to Alaska? I don't know. But that sound, the kick drum downbeat with a ringing rattle hi-hat cymbal on a constant cycle at high speed, it wasn't quite music, but it managed to worm its way around my cerebral cortex and stay there for the rest of my life. And any time I hear a vintage VW van or Beatles engine start up, my heart just goes back. On the first day, we drove over the Canadian border. On our first night, we pitched that large tent that attached to the side of the camper, popped up the rooftop, and cooked dinner on a portable camp stove. Now, I don't remember seeing that tent very often after that. It was a lot of work to set it up, and no one slept in it. I don't remember the driving, actually, that day, just setting up of camp. It must have been a smooth and pretty dull ride. But the driving took up most of every day, leaving everyone restless and bored. And one night we pulled into a campground and my mother told us all, go get dirty. I don't think we really believed her, but we ran around a little bit in the dusty parking area anyway. And we came back a little out of breath and dusty. 
But our mom looked at us quickly and shook her head. Eh, you aren't dirty enough. Go out there and get really dirty. Okay, if that's what she wants, we'll run out again. And well, we started to roll around in the dirt and then we came back and she looked at us and said, you still aren't dirty enough. Okay, okay, I got it. All right, let's really do it. We smeared dirt on our faces. We rubbed dirt in our hair. We put dirt down our pants. We got really, really dirty. Finally, caked with dirt and laughing, mom let us sit down for dinner. Other families in the campground may have thought it a little strange, but they just didn't understand that dirt was exactly what we needed. In Edmonton, Calgary, we stopped for a day or two to see the rodeo. We sat in the stands and watched the cowboys as they rode their bucking broncos, roped steers, and tried to stay away from the bull. The rodeo clown always seemed to be right on the edge of getting gored. As souvenirs, we got straw cowboy hats, which we wore for the rest of the trip until they just vaporized. I thought it was wonderful that there were cowboys all the way up north here in Canada, but based on the cowboys I'd seen on television, I thought they were only in places like Texas or Montana. I really liked Canada, and the fact that they were cowboys, well, made me like it even more. Now, after the rodeo, we drove up to see Banff National Park. The Canadian Rockies were my first sight of glaciers and what we started to call real mountains. Of course, I had seen mountains like the Alleghenies in Pennsylvania, which are beautiful, but I hadn't seen crags of rock towering above the tree line or fields of glacial ice filling a valley. That was beyond anything I knew before. To get up higher and to see even more, Dad persuaded Mom to take the ski lift at the ski resort up to the top. It was the sort of ski lift that has enclosed cars where you can sit down inside and look out windows on every side. My brother, sister, and I loved the idea, but Mom was hesitant. She was afraid of heights. She sat in the middle seat at the back with her eyes closed. Fortunately, it was a fast lift, and we made it up to the top pretty quickly. But coming down was difficult. A minute or two into the trip, the lift stopped. The cab swung back and forth, high up in the air. I could see another cab that was coming up not far from us. It was stopped as well and swinging back and forth. Mom was suffering. Dad tried to distract her with talk about what we were going to do after we got down. It was it was only a minute that we were stopped, actually, but that time stretched out endlessly before we started to move again. I don't remember seeing much of that mountain, but I remember seeing her try not to let her fear show. Now, at some point, it must make sense to hide fear, but is it helpful most of the time? I mean, suppressing it always seems to make it stronger. If loving friends and family try to make you feel better through distraction or dismissal of the fear, the fear seems to only grow and grow more. I wonder if there might have been a better way for us to help. I wonder, too, if there is a better way to deal with fear than to stuff it down or deny it. If it was simply called out, as in, this is what I'm afraid of, everybody, no big deal, but I'm going to take a break here, and then I'll face it. Would that shorten the amount of time spent afraid, stressed, angry, and depressed? Is that even possible to do? We left Banff and Calgary and drove towards British Columbia. And after 2,700 miles of travel, the pavement came to an end in Dawson Creek. 
at the edge of town, the Alaska-Canadian Highway began. At some point, the name was changed to the Alaska Highway, but back then it was called the Alcan, or as my brother and I called it, the oil can. That's what it sounded like to us, and our name was aptly descriptive. The only road that connected Alaska and Canada, it was built during World War II in a real hurry. It weaved back and forth over a thousand miles through British Columbia and the Yukon Territory before it entered Alaska hundreds of miles from anyone. Unpaved even in the 1970s, the gravel and dust was kept down a bit by the periodic spraying of oil over the road. It was the oil can. To keep the dust out of the car, we taped all the door and window cracks with wide masking tape as we had been instructed. The tape stayed on the car for most of the trip, but there is quite a bit of debate about how much dust it actually kept out. And within a few miles, we were covered in dust and our mouths and nose were filled with grit. And any time we had spent on a gravel road before, perhaps in farm country or on a stretch of road under construction, did not prepare us for a thousand miles of gravel on the edge of the world. Now, to be clear, it was a wide-ish, single-lane road that aspired to be two-lane. Hanging over the road perpetually was a cloud of dust from the last car or truck that drove through. The movie Mad Max, depicting an imaginary post-apocalyptic landscape in Australia, had not been filmed yet, but it is a pretty good proxy for what I saw then. Large trucks were the most frequent fellow travelers. They had special grates or chain-link fencing covering their fronts, and tanks of gasoline and other miscellaneous supplies strapped wherever they could fit them next to all the spare tires. The trucks drove faster than anyone else, especially us. When they passed on the road, their tires kicked up a storm of gravel and dust, pelting the camper like an angry hailstorm. Like a hailstorm, the stones that hit us were small and it created more sound than damage. However, I remember vividly when a star suddenly appeared on the lower left-hand side of the windshield, when a stone jumped as high as the windshield wipers. Another star appeared a couple of days later. I, I started then to worry that the next stone would somehow get through. I would sit in the back watching the road and try to come up with some sort of plan for what we should do if the windshield was breached. I still have no idea what I would have done. I am very glad, however, that windshields are apparently pretty tough to break. Within a few days, we acclimated to the dusty days of driving. It became difficult to believe that just a few days before we were in Banff, where everything was cool, clean, and gentle. On the oil can, we traveled outside the world to a place where so much was unfamiliar, unpredictable, and frankly unpleasant. But my father loved it. This was the Yukon adventure he probably dreamed of making since he was a kid. He hunched over the steering wheel and peered through the dusty windshield. This wasn't the pursuit of a comfortable young lawyer's career in Philadelphia. This was the wild. This was a place of action, of extremes, of the wild west beyond the imaginings of any cowboy movie or any radio show. He was running away. So was my mother. Neither of them felt comfortable in the world they grew up in country clubs and private schools and the right set of people. It was awful to them, and I don't disagree. Many others feel the same, but very few would drive to the end of the earth with three toddlers in an underpowered van to get away from it. 
There were other reasons to do something like this, depending on your point of view. Urban crime, pollution, social unrest, poverty, the Vietnam War contributed to a lot of people's sense that the world really wasn't safe. In years to come, family stories told of this time were all stories of escape. The world was falling apart, but we got out in time. Alaska in 1970 was an undefined place where the world outside had only limited influence. But it was also still a dangerous place where nature and other people rarely seemed to have your best interests at heart. It felt free, though. In Alaska, it was possible to reinvent who you were and what you did. The Alcan, then, was a preview, not only of the danger, but of the fierce beauty of places that aren't touched as much by people. Beyond the dust of the road, we could see the forest stretched out in every direction with no sign of humans, no billboards, no rest stops, no restaurants, and no people. Even when there was something special, say, for a tourist to enjoy, there were barely any signage. About 760 miles from the Alaska border, we turned off the road for the entrance to a campground, a, a turnoff 100 miles from anything. Dusty and tired, we pulled into a space for the camper, and Mom and Dad told us to put on our bathing suits and follow them down an unmarked path. And we smelled at first rotten eggs. The path led to a simple boardwalk and then a steaming pond. I'd never seen a hot spring before. My mother explained that there weren't any rotten eggs. It was sulfur gas coming up from deep in the ground where there was molten lava heating up the water. That sounded ridiculously magical. Hot water in a pool, out in the open, in the north. We, well, we all got in, and it was wonderful. I had never experienced a hot tub before, but this was an excellent introduction, augmented by mossy plants, trees, and the quiet blue sky above. In the water, we didn't really notice the smell of sulfur. We soaked long enough for all the road dust to dissolve. We felt clean for the first time in a while. Loaded back into the camper and off once again, in a few miles, the smell of sulfur came back. We were a family of rotten eggs. It took more than a few days for that to subside, but it was worth it. Gas stations, very important, especially in the last few hundred miles. We all got into the habit of watching the gas gauge. When it was at a quarter tank or lower, it became especially tense. When was the last time we saw any sign of human life? When the needle got close to E, no one even talked. My father's shoulders crept higher as he hunched over the wheel. Every curve of the road prompted us to scan ahead for a gas sign, and every curve seemed to reveal a few more miles of pine trees and maybe a bridge over a river or a view of a mountain in the difference, but no gas station. Decades later, I still scan for gas stations, even when there's plenty of them every few miles. A gas station is usually not a place of beauty. Oil stains and dents in every surface seem to appear even before they finish building the gas station. The smells of gasoline, carbon monoxide, toilet bowl cleaner, and very old beef jerky combine into one very distinctive perfume. 
Every window is smudged, and the remaining surfaces are all made of sun-faded and cracked plastic. And every puddle has a rainbow. When we found a gas station, it came up by surprise. So warm and friendly and ready to fill our gas tank, we all began to talk again and relax. Next stop, the Alaska border. Now, I don't remember seeing a sign when we crossed. The road was a little bumpier in Alaska, but we were still on a lone gravel road making its way through the forest all around us. But something had changed, even if it was just in our minds. When I remember that time, I remember Canada being green and Alaska blue. That's the color used for the two countries in a road atlas, but it was also something else. In the Yukon, we saw forest. In Alaska, we saw mountains, incredible mountains. The rocky pinnacles shining blue-gray in the sun and the glacial ice shining blue-white. We started to see Alaska license plates on the backs of trucks, splattered with mud and bent by road gravel. They all had the words, North to the Future, printed on the bottom. We were driving into the future. Alaska is large. From east to west, it is as wide as the entire United States. At 665,000 square miles, it's large enough to contain Texas, California, and Montana with a little bit left over. I would like to say that we explored the entire state, but of course we didn't because only 20% of the state is accessible by road. But there's a lot to see in that 20%. For example, the second biggest mountain in the world. In our little camper, we just drove to the base of that mountain as easily as going to somewhere like, I don't know, Vermont. We arrived after dark quickly set up our camper hammocks before going to sleep. And the next morning early, the light came in through the sides of my pop-up tent on top of the camper. As usual, the condensation from our breathing all night was starting to drip off the ceiling onto my sleeping bag. So I reached over to the screen window of the tent and zipped it open completely. Cool air skimmed through the space, drying out the moisture and helping me to open up my eyes. I looked out, my legs still in the sleeping bag to see a solid wall of mountain filling every bit of my view. Only when I crawled out the window to the roof of the camper could I see any sign of an end in any direction. Now around the base, I could see what looked like several normal mountains, all snow-capped, tall and rocky, acting as foothills to the massive 20,000-foot peak of Denali. It looked impossible, like something you would only see in an exaggerated opera illustration. It, it couldn't be real. With my mouth hanging open, I couldn't look away for the longest time. That was a mountain. Now the name Denali roughly translates to the Great One in the local Athabascan tribal languages, probably the most appropriate name for a mountain ever conceived. At the time, the name Denali wasn't used. Instead, it had carried the name McKinley to honor a former U.S. president. Now, there is no president before, now, or ever who is or was great enough to replace the name Denali. And starting in 1975, there was a movement in Alaska to change it back. Now, growing up, we all knew the real name, but still had to use McKinley if we wanted to be understood, especially by anyone who lived outside of the state. In 2015, however, President Obama announced the name should officially be changed back. Officially, the Great One 
now has its name. We visited Fairbanks, a small town deep in the interior, where we went to a performance of an old-time gold rush show of some kind. The floor was covered with sawdust, and a woman dressed in 19th century dress played an upright piano and told jokes. We went to Anchorage, where we met with my father's friend from law school. He was a bit younger than my parents and seemed very cool with his bell-bottom jeans. We also saw that Anchorage was a lot like many other small or medium-sized town, but it was surrounded by mountains. In a short time, we saw quite a bit, but as I try to remember what we saw, there isn't much in my memory. It was one part of a much longer trip around the country, and perhaps most of the memories were crowded out by the years of living there. We made our way back down the Alcan somehow and down the West Coast through California where we visited cousins in Northern and Southern California. We went to Disneyland where I was disappointed to learn I wasn't tall enough to drive on the little go-karts. The Pirates of the Caribbean, that was memorable. It's a Small World was memorable too, but not for any good reason other than the incredible stickiness of that theme song. Now from Los Angeles, we made our way to the Grand Canyon in Arizona, then north to Chicago. We had settled into a rhythm of driving, sightseeing, then driving some more before we found a campground, made dinner, went to bed. There was a lot of quiet time as we drove, as we were all very tired at this point. And my parents talked quietly amongst themselves a lot in a way that we couldn't hear. In Chicago, by the time we drove through it in 1970, it had been through a lot. The 1968 Democratic Convention, Protests, riots, the burning of whole neighborhoods, and heavy-handed militaristic efforts to stop protesters had worn the city out, while years of efforts by Mayor Daley, Mies van der Rohe, and others to construct a cold, regimented, and car-centric formalism throughout the city was taking its toll. I remember sitting behind my parents in the camper as they drove south on Michigan Avenue with skyscrapers and views of Grant Park. It was a hazy and sticky day. I couldn't see the tops of the buildings. Traffic was heavy and slow. A constant stopping and starting went right to my stomach, putting me off balance like a spinning ride at a carnival. I felt layers and layers of dirt on me, on my clothes and on the car seat, thousands of miles of dirt, sweat, and camp food. My mother sat in the navigator's seat to the right of dad, quiet and still. She leaned back and against the window on her right. Relaxed and almost trance-like, she stared out the windshield. My father sat in the driver's seat, hunched over the wheel as usual. Shaking his head, he muttered over and over again, they ruined it. I never asked him about what they had ruined, but I learned about it later. Fortunately, by the time I saw Chicago again, 12 years later, it had recovered a bit. It was still a mess, but it was also one of the most beautiful and exciting cities in the world. At least I thought so. I moved there after college. It's possible to ruin a city, I suppose, but unless it's buried under a volcano or drowning in a rising ocean, I've come to believe that whatever is ruined in a city can heal, transform, and become something wonderful. But at that point, Chicago was not at its best. Few cities are with high heat and humidity, even without all the problems of a city not quite in its prime, we made our way east towards Philadelphia and stopped for the night in our final campground of the trip. Dad made dinner for us while Mom lay down in the camper. Everything was quiet. 
We were all tired, of course, but it seemed extra quiet. My brother, sister, and I ate at a picnic table next to the camper while Dad went to check in on Mom. It was darker than usual, maybe because it was later in the day or maybe because it was later in the summer. My father had started a fire in the campground fire pit, and after dinner we sat and watched the sparks fly up into the sky. He came out and sat down with us, quiet but excited. How do you feel about having another brother or sister? That's not what we expected. This winter, your mother is going to have another baby. Of course, we were excited. I think my sister, most of all, she hoped it would be a girl so she wouldn't be the only one in the family. But Dad still had more news to share. We've decided that next summer, we will all move to Alaska. <laughs>